Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. M. Chris Fabricant, Director of Strategic Litigation at the Innocence Project, has written a book titled Junk Science and the American Criminal Justice System, which tells the stories of innocent people going to prison because they, of what can only be described as bogus forensic science, bite mark evidence, flawed arson analysis, and faulty hair comparisons. The book is published by Akasic Books and brings Mr. Fabricant to our show now. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I guess I shouldn't be surprised that you say there are two types of science in our country, one for the wealthy and one for poor people, and that difference is often between the scientific evidence used in civil litigation where money's at stake and what's called the scientific evidence that's used in our criminal justice system. Yeah, the what I'd called poor people science is a theme that I developed when I was really trying to look at, you know, the the use of scientific evidence broadly in our criminal legal system. And what we saw and what I discovered through that research was, you know, these parallel forces in our legal system that were pushing the use of scientific evidence to the fore in so many of this types of litigation. And we could see that they were getting the science right when money was at issue but not really caring about it when life and liberty were at issue. So hasn't it led throughout history to the wrongful prosecutions of and executions of innocent men and disproportionately black and brown people? Yeah, you know, what we learned through the work of the Innocence Project and similar organizations is something that we had never really known before, and that until the advent of forensic DNA analysis, we believed that forensic sciences were real, that they were validated, that they had been demonstrated reliable, and that we could rely on them to make life and liberty decisions. And when forensic DNA analysis came online and Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld founded the Innocence Project, what they understood was not only that this would be um, you know, useful for prosecuting crimes, but it would also be useful for demonstrating innocence. And as a result of that, we learned that half of all wrongful convictions are attributable, at least in part, to discredited forensic evidence. Well, you begin your book with a horrific story of a murder of a man and the rape of his wife by someone in a sailor's uniform in Newport News, Virginia, in 1982. The assailant bit the wife's legs repeatedly, and uh, a sailor named Keith Allen Harward was convicted of the crimes based on an analysis of tooth marks by two forensic dentists. Yeah, really six dentists in the end all agreed that Keith Allen Harward had created those bite marks to the exclusion of every other person ever born. And, you know, what I began... You even include pictures of the teeth involved. Yes, I thought it would be interesting for readers to have a look at what passed for forensic sciences and, uh, and what had led to a wrongful conviction and 34 years of imprisonment for a crime that mm-hmm. Keith Harwood had not committed. One of the photographs shows Harwood with a mustache, but didn't the woman who was raped describe the, a man without a mustache? You know, w- yes. Didn't that matter? You, know, you, you don't just grow so. a mustache immediately. You know, it's funny that you say that because, you know, wrongful identifications or misidentification is the leading contributing factor to wrongful conviction. And what we learned through those cases is that things like a mole on somebody's face or facial hair or glasses or not, those are very diagnostic of reliability. And if you get it wrong, they should have been paying attention to that. Well, if they were trying to be scientific, why wasn't it noticed that Howard's blood type didn't match blood that was recovered on the evidence? Well, that was deliberately suppressed and that they, um, we did not learn that and Keith Harward did not learn that until we picked up the case in 2016 and did a FOIA request and got the reports that showed that what was um, presented at trial as inconclusive actually should have excluded Mr. Harward to begin with. So the Innocence Project played a, a major role in finally getting him released. He was spared the death penalty, but did, but as you said, he spent 33 years of, of a life sentence in prison until it was determined that the killer was actually a man with a long criminal record named Jerry Crotty. Yeah, that was really, you know... This uh, wrongful conviction and the crime occurred in Virginia, which has been really one of the most hostile states in the union um, for innocence litigation. Very, very tough place for defendants generally, and that includes innocence defendants. But when we discovered the DNA evidence in the case, 
and got that DNA evidence tested, we were able to upload it to a national database called CODIS and identify Jerry Crotty as the actual perpetrator. Is bite mark evidence still being used in cases like this? All 50 states, still admissible. Every state. But not nationally. Well, federal court, I'm not sure. I think I think wasn't some some legislation passed that made it difficult or well. Well, I mean they're they're going to amend the federal rule of evidence to make it a little bit more difficult to get in junk science, but the truth is is that um, there's still not a published opinion in the country that says that you can't use bite mark evidence anymore. Isn't this story one of the ones featured in the Netflix documentary series called The Innocence Files? Yes, The Innocence Files, um, the first three episodes uh, focus um, a lot on um, forensic odontology, which is what the forensic dentists call themselves when they're in court. And three cases at the Innocence Project have litigated LeVon Brooks, Kennedy Brewer, and Keith Allen Harward. And um, you'll see, you know, the the charlatan Michael West, who is a forensic dentist, that was responsible for two of those wrongful convictions, and then also some of the folks that were responsible for Mr. Harward's. You know, and then, you know, I write a scene with Dr. West in the book that was really one of the most extraordinary experiences I've ever had as a lawyer and I've been around and we got to a civil deposition in a death penalty case and he had done no prep had not read the transcripts had not looked at any of the evidence he uh, proceeded to call me an asswipe then Mr. Asswipe and then he had decided to um you know, it was funny. I think the only prep you, that because he did, you were the lawyer defending the accused, Eddie Lee Howard, which is one of the third story mm-hmm. that I focus on in my book, and he called me a sociopath because I was uh, working for the Innocence Project. And the uh, I think that the only prep he did is that when I finally got hours into this deposition, um, I was done with kind of more substantive questions, and I just accused him of fraud. He said to me, "My name's not Fabricant." Yours is. <laughs> I think the only thing he prepped for the entire deposition. Aren't you a second-generation public defender? I am proudly. Um, Your father my, is well known. That's right. Yeah, my father was uh, with the Legal Aid Society in 1969. And your parents met when your mother was indicted in 1969 for trafficking hashish. Your father represented her. Yeah, I. Um, How know, important it, was the fact that she was an artist, which taints her image a bit? How relevant was that to the case? Uh, you know, I. You know, you when you think back, you know, I mean, it doesn't sound like a big deal as much these days. But in that, in those days, we had the Rockefeller drug laws, and you could get a life sentence for that type of uh, conduct. So. Yeah, you know, I mean, that was a marriage that lasted about an hour and a half, but it produced me, ultimately. And, you know, the circumstances are, um, you could look at it as kind of a meet-cute or a meet-disastrous, you know, depending on your perspective. But it led you to consider becoming a lawyer? I always became a public defender first. Yeah, I was a public defender um, with uh, the Bronx Defenders in the South Bronx, uh, which is one of the best public defender shops in the country. And I was also an appellate defender with Appellate Advocates. So, and, you know, in a manner of speaking, as an Innocence Project lawyer, I'm still defending indigent accused. Well, how did you come to work at the Innocence Project? You know, I was a clinical law professor for three years at um, Pace Law School, and through the clinic that I was running, I was doing strategic litigation, addressing mass misdemeanor arrests and stop and frisk issues, and that type of you know the strategic litigation made me qualified to begin a strategic litigation department at the Innocence Project, and that's what I was hired to do. You said that bite mark evidence is still admissible in all 50 states, but a number of the cases you describe in the book took place in Texas. Is Texas the worst? You've said that Texas is the most paradoxical state to litigate forensic science in the country. It's true. You know, I write about four wrongful executions that occurred in Dallas, uh, well, in Texas anyway, and three of which were prosecuted by the Dallas District Attorney's Office. And including Stephen Mark, not he wasn't executed, obviously, but Stephen Marchini's case was prosecuted there too. So as we know, you know the law and order state that that Texas is, you know, it's predictably, you know, had a lot of gross miscarriages of justice. But the paradoxical part is, is that they've been the best in the country 
about addressing the use of unreliable forensics in criminal courts. And, you know, with passages of laws that are very progressive in this area, they have the best forensic science commission in the country. And they have the first conviction integrity units, which are units within prosecutor's office to look at potential wrongful convictions within their own office, none of which had happened anywhere else. And uh, a woman named Lynn Robitaille Garcia, the general counsel of the Texas Forensic Science Commission, played a role in changing the policy? Yeah, well... The One of the wrongful executions that I talk about is the Cameron Todd Willingham um, for the arson murder of his three daughters. He That was 2004. He was convicted in 1992. Yes. And ultimately He's supposed executed. supposed to set a fire that killed three children. Three children of his own children. And the only motive that they ever offered was that they interfered with his beer drinking and dart throwing lifestyle. It's plainly a wrongful execution, and the Forensic Science Commission had taken up this case, the science, uh, in air quotes, that was used to support that conviction. And at the time, that just on the eve of the commission holding public hearings and issuing a report on that, we know that Governor Rick Perry was running for an unprecedented third term in Texas for governor. And he was the one that had signed off on the execution of the, of Cameron Todd Willingham, and there had evidence had been faxed to him before the execution from very very prominent forensic expert um, that demonstrated that the science was bogus, and that Perry signed off on the execution anyway. So, and is he still engaged in this fight? Well, no, because what he did is that he fired everybody on the commission right on the eve of the election and slow rolled the investigation until after he cruised to a third term. He neutered the political power of it. And then the commission really had lost its uh, mojo and really and its prominence after that until um, Lynn Garcia was hired as general counsel and um, put the commission back on track for it really being objective, transparent, science-oriented commission. And we filed with that commission the complaint on the behalf of Stephen Cheney on bite mark evidence. And it was the first time that the commission, again, was a national story. A recent story reveals that in an annual review of U.S. capital punishment, the Death Penalty Information Center revealed that 35% of the 20 execution attempts carried out this year were Visibly problematic. Yeah. I mean, you know, in any... Seven botched execution attempts recorded this year. You know, isn't that incredible? You know, I mean, is that you would think that a country that, you know, particularly in certain states that are committed to capital punishment as they are, would, um, not that there's any humane way really to do it, but that you could do it with some efficacy and without the disgraceful conditions that we've seen these carried out in. You know, I mean, in any, you know, ordered society, in my view, would not include capital punishment. And the idea that we're going to get it all right, that we're not going to make mistakes, is absurd. And that's one of the reasons why I focused on capital punishment in my book and why nobody can really look at the record of capital punishment in the United States and not come to the understanding, A, that it's a racist policy, and B, that we have executed innocent people in this country. What about if we have footage, film footage, of somebody committing the crime, and obviously uh, a person with a, with a history, a bad history, is, do you never draw the line? I think cherry-picking hypotheticals where you could say, like, you know, oh, this is a particularly heinous crime, or we have great particular evidence in this case, and, and this is the exception— is not the way that public policy can ever really be adapted. My guest is M. Chris Fabricant. His book, Junk Science and the American Criminal Justice System, is published by Akashic Books. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. You uh, also write a lot about the case involving Stephen Mark Cheney. Wasn't he your first client at the Innocence Project? 
Yeah, you know, when I've been doing readings, I, I've typically read um, the portion that was about meeting him for the first time because the experience of meeting somebody in prison 25 years into a life sentence and coming and representing the Innocence Project was such a moving experience for me because it was so different than meeting any other client that I'd had. You know, I'd done appeals for a long time in New York and I'd been a trial attorney for a long time. And I um, and the the relationship you have with those clients is so different than you have with somebody that has been in prison for that long. And I, I just recognized, you know, the responsibility that comes um, with, you know, representing, you know, somebody's last chance and their only hope. And that's an awesome responsibility. And I was very, um, you know, it scared the hell out of me, really. You know what I mean? And I recognized, you know, how much work was ahead of it and that really getting the Innocence Project to take your case is winning the lottery. It's a one in a million shot, you know what I mean? And I could see that that was the case here, you know what I mean? And um, yeah, that's when I decided actually to write the book. What was he accused of? So this is really, you know, in the 1980s, there was a young couple, um, John and Sally Sweek, that were living in Dallas, um, selling cocaine out of their apartment. They were not a huge supplier, and they didn't keep a particularly tight ship, but they were partying a lot, and a lot of their friends were buying from them, and they were kind of a lot of people in and out of that apartment at the time including Stephen Cheney, um, who was, you know, one of their customers at that during that period. He and this is also a period where, you know, cocaine was not even thought to be addictive. Right. You know, and that it was, you know, relatively, you know, a benign drug. You know, we all learned better um, later in that era. And the drug dealing couple, the Sweeks, fell behind with their wholesalers at one point. And this um, is well documented now. And they ended up being murdered on their kitchen floor. They were both stabbed over 18 times um, and had their throats cut and left for dead. And there were really thousands of other suspects, incalculable number. And, you know, there were lots of people's fingerprints all over the apartment, including Stephen Cheney's, because he'd been there. There was never any question about that. And they didn't really have any evidence um, pointing to him apart from that until a snitch claimed that he owed them money and that this was his alleged motive for murdering them. And then they identified what they believed to be a bite mark on one of the victims. They matched it to Stephen Cheney, and he ended up doing 28 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. So, yeah, so John had the bite mark on his left forearm. Sally had hair under her fingernails presumably right. from fighting off the attacker, and there were bloody shoe prints. Uh, right. Is that typical in, you in know, there a were a lot like of, this? Yeah, well, there were a lot of different types of evidence that were used um, to point at Stephen Cheney. There was, he's alleged to have flunked a polygraph, which is junk science. They alleged that the fingerprint that was left at the scene would have had to have been fresh based on the way that it had been implanted, which was also junk. They claimed that a presumptive blood test that they had taken of his tennis shoes was positive for blood, and it wasn't. And then they claimed that a bloody shoe print had matched, you know, or really could not be excluded from his pair of, of Pumas. None of that was true. But and it was also used to, to point the finger at him as well as this bite mark evidence. The shoe prints always showed two sets of, of footprints that led across the carpet. The you know classic 1980s shag brown carpet with bloody footprints across them. One of them was a waffle pair that looked like, you know, could have come from a pair of Pumas like Stephen Cheney's. But there were also a pair of cowboy boots. And the cowboy boots looked to me... As a, you know, I'm not an expert in footwear impression evidence, but they looked a lot to me like cowboy boots. And we knew that an alternative perpetrator was known to wear them, you know, for whatever that's worth. Well, didn't he have an alibi that was corroborated by a number of witnesses? Yes, he had nine alibis, right? Isn't nine, that enough? It should be, you know, I mean, and you see this in so many of our cases is that defense experts or defense witnesses, including alibi witnesses, are often discredited by jurors in that. You know, these are people that it's very easy to argue that they're biased on behalf of clients. You know, the worst is when it's a client's mother. You know, I mean, it was immediately discounted because everybody believes that somebody's mother would say anything to save them. 
But Stephen Cheney had people that were relatively disinterested in his life, including his foreman at uh, the construction job that he worked and came in, knew that he had punched into work that day and punched out when they had had a rain, a rain out of the work. He had gone, he had helped somebody move, he had changed a flat tire. It was a very detailed, long day, you know what I mean? And that was all put in front of the jury. And junk science was enough to overwhelm it all. But the DNA under the victim's fingernails was found to belong to somebody else. Why wasn't that enough to convince the court? Yeah, so I write the the Stephen Cheney story in stages because that's what happened with his case. And that um, when I had met him um, in the Texas State Penitentiary in Huntsville... That had already happened, and that the DNA testing that had been that you're referring to had happened um, maybe 17, 18 years after his original conviction because they didn't have DNA evidence at the time. And what they showed was, as you point out, that the hairs that were found under Sally Sweek's fingernails, which is often where um, probative DNA evidence is found because defenseless victims are often fighting off perpetrators with their bare hands. And there was a mixture of three male uh, DNA samples in under her fingernails, none of which had been Stephen Cheney. But that was not enough to exonerate him because there had always been it was always understood that there were two perpetrators, and he was convicted as killing John Sweek, not Sally. So it was the accomplice who had left that hair. That was the uh, theory. You said that one of the reasons you focused on Stephen Cheney's case is that it demonstrates that even with some DNA evidence, it can be a real struggle to overturn a conviction, let alone demonstrate innocence. Uh, you, you need really better DNA analysis, is that it? Are we getting that these days? Well, um, yes and no. You know, the, the three cases that I focus on primarily in the book are the three kind of types of exonerations that are really possible. One is the Stephen Cheney uh, case, I mean, I'm sorry, the Keith Allen Harward case. That's a slam dunk DNA exoneration because not only was uh, an abundant amount of DNA in multiple places in the crime scene, but we also identified the actual perpetrator. And even in Virginia, it was hard to deny innocence. Meanwhile, Harwood Harwood wound up in prison for how many years? 33. (laughs) I said 34 earlier because I'm counting the year he spent in jail prior to trial, which he does, of course, as well. And then there's the Stephen Cheney case where you have a little bit of DNA evidence, you know, but it's not enough to exonerate. And the story of how much work it was to overturn that conviction is what we're dealing with now. And then you look at the Eddie Lee Howard case, which was a total fraud. And we had no DNA evidence. And, you know, getting that conviction, that's a, that was a death penalty case. Overturned, So you get uh, uh, a sampling of really what this litigation looks like and how hard it is if you don't have DNA like we had in Harward's case. Well, in the case of Cheney, he was released in 2015 after spending 28 years in prison. And uh, that's after you and the Innocence Project began working on the case? Yeah. So the... Most of our cases come to the Instance Project by prisoners writing into us and asking for help. And we have a, a, a very sophisticated, huge intake department that have um, the people that work in intake are sophisticated about science, about criminal legal matters. And they work up the case. They do the research. They um, review transcripts. They communicate with prisoners. And they make recommendations to the post-conviction legal team as to whether or not um, they should take on this particular case or not. When we started my department, the Strategic Litigation Department, we're working on the leading contributing factors to wrongful conviction. So eyewitness ID, um, flawed forensics, false confessions, and that kind of work. So when we decided to focus on forensics, we decided to focus on bite marks because it's really the junkiest of the techniques that are still available. So we went looking for cases like Stephen Cheney's and Keith Harward's. And it was, you know, that was part of what made it kind of emotional for me and the one in a million piece because we just found his case, you know, by looking out, you know, I mean, reaching out to, you know, the defense bar and saying, if you've got any of these cases, let us know. But isn't it more difficult when you're, you're doing this 20 or more years after the person was found guilty? Oh, my God, yes. I, um, 
you know, the Innocence Project's policy department spends, you know, an enormous amount of time and resources advocating for retention of evidence, you know, to, you know, test for later. You know, I mean, if it should be obviously tested before trial, so nobody gets wrongfully convicted in the first instance. But the truth is, overwhelmingly, DNA evidence isn't available. You know, I mean, you think about your typical burglary, your typical robbery, your typical drive-by shooting, you know, all of these are not instance where biological evidence is necessarily exchanged or collected at crime scenes. Or that the, where the police even were clever enough to have looked for it. Right. You know what I mean? And so that's, there's this idea that's kind of out there sometimes that, well, wrongful convictions don't happen anymore because we'll just test the DNA beforehand. But that's just not true in, you know, 90, 95% of the cases. And Barry Sheck also was <laughs> one of the lawyers? Yes, Barry was part of our legal team in um, Stephen Cheney's was case. Was he famous at that point? <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, Barry, Barry's famous, you know, all over for, you know, I mean, in, in some um, of my generation of lawyers for the O.J. Simpson case and then also for, of course, founding the Innocence Project with Peter Neufeld. In Texas, um, you know, as I've spent a lot of time with him over the years, you know, and in Texas, what was interesting is that he's famous really because he's led so many high profile um, exonerations in that state and the fight to bring some posthumous justice to the Cameron Todd Willingham fight. So when you walk into court with Barry in Texas, you're like, oh, right, this is a serious celebrity. He's <laughs> like, oh, it's Barry Shack, it's Barry Shack. And they, how do they react to a guy from Brooklyn showing up? I don't think he's thought of as somebody from Brooklyn. I mean, I you. Mean me, right? Yeah. So the, I get treated like that wherever, all over the South, right? You know, I'm the slick New York lawyer that's going to go in and tell him what's what. Meanwhile, Cheney was released after spending 28 years in prison. Did, now, did they just say, so sorry, goodbye? You know, it's rare to get a so sorry at all or a goodbye at all. And so many of our clients, you know, are, are you know, you, you know, it's hard to imagine, really, for any of us who um, haven't been through an experience like this, how you cope with the PTSD that you would experience, mm. the the years, you know, you go into prison before, you know, the advent of the Internet and you come out and it's a whole new world. And, you know, what I write about in this period when he was first released is that, you know, he was his wife, who was one of his alibi witnesses at trial, and they weren't married at the time, but got married while he was imprisoned stuck by him, but was living in poverty. And, you know, he became the breadwinner two days after he was released from prison. He was in his late 60s. The union hired him back. <laughs> and he was back on, you know, um, as an iron worker in Dallas, you know, maybe a week after he'd just spent the last 28 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. So it was really, you know, he was free, you know, but in so many ways, nothing had really changed, you know, I mean, in that, you know, it was really just, um, you know, just living above the poverty line. And a, a crime had been committed against him on, on some level, wouldn't you Absolutely, say? absolutely. You know, I mean, and, you know, what was miraculous about this, you know, is... I mean, we're talking about people accused of crimes, but then the accusers are never accused of crimes. Yeah, you know, I mean... Um, and, you know, often, you know, prosecutors are in denial about, um, you know, that I write about the, the so-called um, the unindicted co-ejaculator theories that you get in post-conviction DNA litigation where there's this desperate effort to explain away evidence that clearly demonstrates clients' innocence and they'll make up like a third perpetrator who wasn't, you know, part of the case or what have you. And that sometimes works. What was different about Stephen Cheney's case, which in a, a scene that I re, uh, that I remember that I wrote about and that I'll never forget, was that um, we were in court in the judge's chambers before we were going to have a hearing on a couple of um, matters related to our litigation in the case. And Neil Pass, the trial prosecutor, who was a very young prosecutor at the time that he prosecuted Stephen Cheney. Um, had relied on this junk science for it, you know, and had, you know, not given it much more of a thought for the last 30 years um, until this became a very big deal around Dallas. And so he came to court and it was actually Barry who arranged for um, Neil Pask and Stephen Cheney to meet each other in the judges chambers. And um, his legal team was there, including me and Dana Delger and Barry and a couple other people. And 
I watched them confront each other and confront, you know, looking at each other. And there was this, you know, this pregnant pause, you know, and, and you could just feel the heaviness in the air. And they were thinking about, you know, what they were going to do or what they were going to say. And, and I was thinking about what I might say under if I was Stephen Cheney in those moments. And, you know, he became a very religious person while he was in prison, Mr. Cheney did. And he... Um, was looking at Neil Pask and they were looking at each other and then he bowed his head, Pask did, and um, said that he was sorry and Stephen Cheney put both of his hands on his shoulders and said, I forgive you. And they put their heads down and prayed together as we all just stood there, you know, weeping you know and it was really one of the most incredible moments of my legal career and um and i admire neil pask for his willingness to admit that he was wrong you know and and to and to apologize you know i mean you know what he did and this is true with a lot of wrongful convictions this is true with a lot of the forensic experts that are responsible for wrongful convictions is that they're typically not trying to frame innocent people Right? They're not going out of their way to do that. Most of them believe that the suspect is guilty and that they're helping bring justice, right? So it's, you know, being willing to And they to did the mistake. best they could with what, what they, they had, had at hand exactly. at yes. the time. Yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, and, and I think that that was Neil Pask. You know, I mean, like, he did some things that were, you know, not... Um, that weren't right, you know what I mean, like, during that prosecution. But I, I know that, in my heart, that he believed that Stephen Cheney was guilty. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Enjoying my conversation with M. Chris Fabricant. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Junk Science and the American Criminal Justice System. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, and we thank you very much. And return to M. Chris Fabrican to talk about his book, Junk Science, the American Criminal Justice System, which is published by Akashic Books. Uh, Mr. Fabricant is the Innocent Project's Director of Strategic Litigation. Um, now, uh, you write about Dallas District Attorney named Henry Wade, who mm. was famous for his very high conviction rate from 1951 to 1987. Yeah, I mean... That Henry Wade is one of the most notorious figures in the annals of, you know, the history of the criminal legal system in the United States. You know, I mean, one of the things that I write about, like his era kind of perfectly encapsulates the movement from um, Jim Crow as a legal tool to control and marginalize black and brown people to mass incarceration being used for the same purpose. And really everything that you need to know about the history and the use of our legal system to enforce that um, the repression of, of marginalized communities, you can learn through studying the Dallas District Attorney's Office and particularly the reign of Henry Wade. He became very well known for prosecuting Jack Ruby and for, you know, being the Wade and Roe v. Wade, you know, I mean, and I wanted to mention that that's probably how he's best known, prosecutor in Roe v. Wade. Right. And that was, you know, very, very typical. And, and I write, you know, and his his story 
is really, you know, the story of many of so many of the clients that I write about in the book because and really in in some ways the history of wrongful conviction because he bragged about having a perfect conviction rate and he was so convinced that, you know, of his righteous crusade that he wanted to make sure that nobody ever got away from, you know, the wrath of his prosecutor office. And he developed one of the first really rigorous evidence retention policies in the country, not for the reasons that the Innocence Project wants the evidence to retain, but in case a conviction got overturned on a technicality on appeal or something like that, or that they're going to hold on to it and get them later. And that same evidence retention policy led to the unraveling of his legacy, where I think that there are at least 12 wrongful convictions that have been overturned since that time. And you can see how that legacy led to you know, what I've talked to a lot about the paradoxical nature of the criminal legal system in Texas in particular, because his office was after he was out. The first black man to ever lead that office, Craig Watkins, was elected mm-hmm. and started the first conviction integrity unit in the country after their forensic DNA Alice came online. And that was Stephen Cheney. He tested the evidence under Sally Sweek's fingernails, but it wasn't enough to exonerate. So it's a really, you know, really interesting history, you know, a lot of it, which I didn't know at the time, you know, and then I really like begin that story of Henry Wade with the Tommy Lee Walker wrongful execution of a young black man who was uh, executed in Texas in 1953 for the rape and murder of a white woman during the height of Jim Crow, Texas, and at the height of a frenzy around the so-called Negro Prowler scare. <laughs> and it was alleged by, um, you know, there were all these alleged sightings of naked black men lurking outside of white women's windows that put the town into a literal frenzy. There are armed packs of vigilantes in the streets of Dallas trying to find the so-called Negro Prowler. So when this murder and rape happened, there were no witnesses, there was no forensic evidence, there's no way she could have identified anybody before she died. They were just going to make sure that somebody paid. And that person ended up being Tommy Lee Walker, who falsely confessed to that crime and was executed very quickly thereafter. Hasn't Texas made an effort to correct the situation with things like the passage of the first junk science writ in the country, the first conviction integrity unit at the Dallas District Attorney's Office, and the creation of the Texas Forensic Science Commission? Right. Yes. You know, these are some of the things that we were discussing, and I think that the that is, you know— it's one of the reasons I end up spending a lot of time litigating cases in Texas is because we have— Similar things do not occur in New York? No, there's no—you know, there there are conviction integrity units in New York, and Brooklyn has uh, overturned wrongful convictions, the, um, the DA there, and to a lesser extent that it's happened in uh, Manhattan and the Bronx. And, you know, but there—in um, my view— um, many, many more wrongful convictions that could be addressed by all the prosecutor offices in New York City and elsewhere in New York. There is no you know, so-called junk science writ. And just to be clear what that means is that we've been talking about needing DNA evidence and the importance of, ne- of DNA evidence in overturning wrongful convictions. But you know, sometimes we've also talked about that doesn't exist. And so what do you do if you're convicted on junk science? How do you go back into court, right? What kind of, you know, path do you have statutorily or otherwise to get back into court? Well, what what do you do? Let's say you've been convicted of what you consider to be junk science. Mm -hmm. You get a lawyer and the lawyer says he was convicted on junk science. Is that enough to reopen a case? No, you know, typically, you know, I mean, this is why I focused as much as I did on the Stephen Cheney case. One of the many reasons is that that's essentially what our argument was. You know, I mean, is that this was really just rested on junk science. We're never going to be able to prove to a scientific certainty that he didn't do this. It's just, you know, we had nine alibi witnesses. You know, I mean, there is about as close as you could get without having DNA. And what you can do in Texas and now many other states, but Texas being the first, I think there are five more states and there should be, you know, one in New York. The... um is that if you can demonstrate that you have been in post-conviction, if you can demonstrate that the science, you know, or in air quotes again, that was used to convict you has been discredited with 
you know, the advances in science and you have a path back to go to, to court that you can show to the court, hey, you know, this was thought to be reliable at the time. We know now that today that it isn't. And then it depends on whether the judge is open to that kind of argument or not. Yeah, you know, uh, I mean, and many times, and this was true in Stephen Cheney's case. If you as well. get the wrong judge, you uh, could. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's always true. You get the wrong judge, you know, I mean, you're in trouble. But, <laughs> you know, many times, and this was true in, in Dallas, and it's been true with um, many other wrongful convictions around the country, is that. In addition to going to a conviction integrity unit to, to demonstrate your client's innocence to the prosecutors, now, and, and I write about a scene where um, we were doing this with the Dallas district attorney at the time, is that talking to them about the science that was used to convict them and why it's no longer considered reliable and kind of walking through all the underlying assumptions that have been discredited over time was as much of a major part of that presentation as anything else. And I think that now, I don't want to call anybody like a progressive prosecutor, you know, that I'm not sure that how like those terms can be really um, adequately defined. But I think that if you're open-minded toward the progress of science, conviction integrity units are willing to look at, you know, discredited evidence. But I wonder what it's like to be the lawyer who realizes that this judge really is, it does not have an open mind. Well, I write in the Eddie Lee Howard story that was in Mississippi um, about um, Judge Lee Howard. And you can get you know a real ringside view on what it's like to have a judge who is absolutely not going to give you due process, no matter what. You know what I mean? Is that... We spent, you know, over two years litigating, you know, it's a death penalty case where, you know, this that rested on the testimony of Michael West, the same dentist who was calling me a sociopath and an asswipe during our deposition. And that he wrote an opinion that said none of that mattered. You know, none of that mattered to the outcome of this death penalty case. You know, I mean, where our client had been in Parchman's death row for 26 years. So it's a very chilling and discouraging to walk into a courtroom and be viewed as like the slick New York lawyer that, you know, is not going to show us up, you know, I mean, and that, um, you know, that you have an understanding that you're very unlikely to get justice here. My guess is M. Chris Fabricant, the Innocent Project's Director of Strategic Litigation. We're talking about his book, Junk Science and the American Criminal Justice System, which is published by Akashic Books. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Didn't the charter of the Attorney General's National Commission on Forensic Science expire in April 2017? Um had the Trump administration decided it was no longer needed? Yeah, well, yes. I mean, um, so the National Commission on Forensic Sciences that was stood up by the DOJ um, was the first such national commission that was an effort to bring national standards um, and guidelines to the forensic community because most science um, have standards, right? And that scientific techniques are conducted the same or similar across the country, across the world. That's not true with forensics, right? There isn't any one way to do fingerprints that all fingerprint experts do. And there isn't a code of ethics, right? And there isn't mandatory report writing, you know, that includes X, Y, and Z variables. Really, really basic stuff, right? Even, you know, forgetting about the more controversial issues in forensics. So they had a commission of the leading forensic experts in the country. They had Judge uh, Jed Raycroft, who's a federal judge here in New York, and they had a Judge Barbara Hervey from the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. They had Peter Neufeld was part of it. They had um, forensic scientists who are the best in, in their fields, and they had mainstream scientists and statisticians. So it was really like an all-stakeholders Commission, and they were making progress. You know, I mean, they they put out you know statements, um, viewpoints such as you know reasonable scientific certainty was a phrase that was used in criminal courts all the time, and that's an oxymoron. There's no such thing as certainty in science, right? 
So there's you know a viewpoint saying that you, you can't you shouldn't say that right you know to a jury right because that suggests that it is it's conclusive right if you bought that testimony it means the defendant is guilty right and so it was really the only place where different points of view were able to kind of make some small progress like that and if you want to call it a bipartisan almost you know which is not to say that they were solving all the problems of the forensics they weren't but they were making some progress. And like all things bipartisan, it was shut down by Trump and people went back to their corners and that commission dissolved. And that's it. That's it. Now, you suggested earlier that several well-known forensics have been discredited in recent years, including the use of fingerprints. That's because they're often imperfect in a crime scene setting or because you can find a lot of different fingerprints in a crime setting? Well, yeah, just to be clear, you know, fingerprints in terms of uh, forensics are certainly on the more reliable end, and their fingerprints are not junk science. But what I mean is when I say something like that is that you can take an otherwise reliable technique and make it pretty junky if you don't have enough information, right? And so when you think of, and when I say that, it means that when you think of a fingerprint, it's not the kind of rolled prints that are made deliberately when you're getting your mugshot taken or something like that or where you're trying to open those old iPhones. What they are, are smudges at crime scenes. And we don't know. It's not a scientifically validated fact that the human fingerprint is unique. But even, you know, and I think they probably are, but we haven't demonstrated that. But what's more important in forensics is that we don't know how similar fingerprints can be. And how common or how rare particular aspects of fingerprints, like loops or whorls or islands here or there. And well, we're talking about millions and millions of people. and Billions, right? <laughs> and, and fingerprints that are relatively similar right. in their, the way they're structured. And then this is a subjective technique, right? And so one of the really fascinating aspects of the human mind is the role that cognitive bias plays on our decision-making. And this is, of course, in subjective decision-making. We know how subjective forensics are. So can we trust anything but DNA testing? Um, well, can we trust anything? I, I would be skeptical of anything when you're talking about life and liberty issues, right? You know what I mean? And so I, uh, I think that if you've got really good, strong fingerprint evidence, you know, it's pretty reliable. But... Let me, let me tell you a story about the, the cognitive bias influence in forensics and how important this is, is that when there was a very high profile uh, misidentification of Brandon Mayfield, of they identified him as the bomber of the commuter train in Madrid, Spain in 2004. Brandon Mayfield had never been out of the country, mm -hmm. and he, but he happened to have been married to an Egyptian national. And he happened to have represented somebody that was once convicted of providing material aid to a terrorist organization. So it looked like to the FBI that he was good for it. Turned out they were wrong. So what this sent kind of shockwaves through the, the forensic community because fingerprints were like the gold standard as far as trace evidence goes apart from DNA. What about polygraph tests? Those are bogus, too. I have so many clients, innocent clients, who have failed those. But what ETL Jor did, Dr. ETL Jor, did this study after the Brandon Mayfield fiasco. And he took a group of highly experienced, highly qualified fingerprint experts. And he asked them to do an analysis on, these, on this evidence. What was clever is that he didn't tell these experts that they had, this was from their own prior casework. They had already come to conclusions on all the evidence that they were given. And the only thing he changed was the contextual information that was available in the case files that they got that suggested, oh, the client confessed or that there was an eyewitness or that there was something that would lean one way or the other. Three-fifths of them changed their minds from their original conclusions. Three-fifths. Nothing had changed about the fingerprints at all. So when you think that all forensics carry some measure of subjectivity. And you note that for most felonies, DNA exonerations aren't an option. No, overwhelmingly. Why is that? You know, it's just, though, I would say, you know, I was a public defender for um, something along the lines of 15 years before I got to the Innocence Project, maybe a little less. And I had, during that time, probably three DNA cases, and I represented thousands of people. You know, it's just not that common. 
We don't have uh, more than a minute left, but I want to uh, mention that you say it becomes more and more difficult every time the Supreme Court reinterprets the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. Uh, what is the court tended to decide? So the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act is a piece of legislation that Bill Clinton signed in 1996 that has contributed mightily to mass incarceration. And part of the reason why is that review of state courts' convictions have been sought off by this legislation, making it nearly impossible to get a conviction reviewed in federal court. And overwhelmingly, crimes are prosecuted in state courts. And so the only kind of fair allegedly fair or an objective read you could get on a conviction would be in federal court, which is now virtually impossible. I've been speaking with M. Chris Fabricant, the Innocent Project's director of strategic litigation about his new book from Akashic Books called Junk Science and the American Criminal Justice System. What a pleasure it's been. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks well, for Well, even me. though you tell a, a rather scary story here. <laughs> Sorry. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the station coming to you uh, and the show coming to you because we have fallen behind on our rent and on our rent for uh, our broadcast tower as well. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so, whatever amount, to make a contribution that they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give2wbai.org right now. That's give and the number 2wbai.org or 212-209-2950 because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you don't, usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Junk Science and the American Criminal Justice System by M. Chris Fabricant. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. Uh, you might also consider becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy at $10, $15, $20, $25, however much you feel comfortable giving us per month until you decide that uh, you want to stop. Uh, but we, uh, it allows us to plan for the future, and we'll say thank you for doing that with a WBAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. Either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies totally on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which most other public radio stations do. It allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopate at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on this show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station the only one on the New York Radio Dollars 100% listener sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And we hope you can join us again when Matthew Cobb will discuss his new book about the misuse of science in a different way. The book is called As Gods, A Moral History of the Genetic Age. And I hope to see you then. 